Hello and welcome to Oh God What Now? I am your host, Alex Andreu. This week, as the Bank of England raises interest rates to 5%, Rishi Sunak says he's totally 100% on it. But the latest opinion polls point to voters being totally 100% onto him. Also, as the Tories take possibly their last opportunity to hand out peerages, honours and cushy jobs, how do we stop politicians from rewarding their mates at our expense? And as a little extra, we speak to Doomsday Watch's Arthur Snell to get the latest on a pretty eventful weekend for increasingly weekend strongman Putin. Finally, the BBC held a Brexit special question time with an all-vote-leave audience. We watched so you don't have to. Let's meet the panel. Yasmin Sirhan writes for time. Hi, Yasmin. Hello, Alex. Yasmin, um, Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi has been rather busy recently meeting with US officials and, bizarrely, Elon Musk. What was the main takeaway from all of this? Well, I mean, the, the, his US visit, which I'm, I'm going to privilege over his, his visit with Elon Musk, though I'm sure that was a very special moment between the two of them. <laughs> I, I think the, the, the visit to Washington was broadly heralded as a huge moment for US-India bilateral relations. And why wouldn't it be? I mean, you know, being feted with a lavish state dinner and an address to Congress is kind of the highest form of diplomatic recognition that one gets in Washington. Um, for me, though, the, the biggest takeaway was, was really that it highlighted the limits of of the Biden administration's commitment to defending human rights and democracy. I think we'll all remember that as a candidate, Biden really made this a cornerstone of his foreign policy. Um, and in fact, he came under a lot of pressure from his fellow Democrats to raise U.S. concerns about um, you know, human rights abuses in India, particularly the repression of mal- religious minorities, as well as troubling encroachments on political rights and freedom of expression. Um, but instead of doing that, the U.S. gave Modi the platform to deny those the, those re- very real concerns, um, basically to deny that there was any discrimination at all. Um, they gave him a huge platform to do that. And I, I think, you know, regardless of what was said in private, I, I think that is kind of, you know, the, the biggest um Certainly the biggest thing I've taken away from the whole thing. Mm. Hannah Fern is a columnist and writer at the iPaper and our one-woman podmaster's housing desk. Hi, Hannah. Hi there. Hannah, Stephen Lawrence uh, was murdered 30 years ago. A BBC investigation has just named a sixth suspect in his killing. Why does the Met continue to fail in this case? Well, the Met continues to fail in this case and more broadly, I suppose, because it's still a deeply racist and sexist and homophobic force that doesn't represent the people it serves at all. And it actively fails to hold up the law as it's written. And we see this all the time. Obviously, we we see the stories every day in London of black children being stripped at school, uh, girls strip searched without um, a chaperone for often very minor misdemeanors. So the idea that it's moved on, I think, is... Uh, wrong. But it's interesting that the BBC has named this potential suspect. The person is called Matthew White. He died in 2021, aged 50. And I think we've got a better chance of exposing the many failings of the Met now through organisations like the BBC and investigative journalism, simply because this man has died. Mm. Um, we don't have... The, so the defamation issues. Yes, just de- defamation sort drops of away. Fizzle away yes, it won't, once somebody has died, you can't defame them anymore. Equally, there's not going to be a trial because he's dead. So there's no suggestion that any of this journalism would put uh, the journalist or the publisher in contempt of court mm. for a trial. Mm. So there's a real chance to get into the kind of detail. Um, and I fear that it's... I mean, it's sad that these things can only really come to light because... This man has died. Seth Tevo is a journalist and author of Behind Closed Doors, A Secret Life of London Private Members Clubs. Hi, Seth. Hello, Alex. Seth, there are between three and five by-elections coming up. We think it's going to be five. Although Nadine Doris has now missed the deadline for her election to be called before the recess, so it will definitely be a later one. I, I don't think she'll ever resign. Um Labour got in a bit of trouble for unveiling an all-male, all-white slate of candidates for those five. Is this just a fluke or does it point to a more systemic issue? 
it is an issue for all parties, particularly the big two, which have some way to go, actually, on the gender gap. Um, Labour has a long history with trying to use all-women shortlists in language you wouldn't really use now, the Blair's Babes of the 1997 landslide. That proportion of uh, women MPs incoming in a parliament was really only sustained off the back of all-women shortlists. And the Labour Party's own internal panel found that they'd actually broken the law in how they'd implemented that policy. It's something which has had many challenges within Labour and they've actually, uh, in March of last year, abandoned the policy entirely for general elections. What's interesting for all the parties is that they all tend to have a much better record when it comes to candidate selection in by-elections. And that's because they tend to suspend democracy in by-elections. Mm. They tend to be quite strong internal controls and centralised control over, over candidate selection. And what that points to is that party activists across parties, when given a choice have a certain element of bias towards, I mean, a lot of the research shows we think of an MP as male and middle-aged. And so when we're given a choice, even if we say we're against going for the same old, mm. we very often do. Mm. That's interesting. Um, and Alex, there were some important elections in your home country of Greece. Can you talk a bit about what happened? Well, it was the second one in a month, so how important could it be? Um, no, it, it, you're right. It was very important <laughs> because uh, basically the, the electoral system has changed from um, proportional representation back to a weird hybrid bonus seats type thing. And uh, and so what happened was that last time no one got a majority, but there was no incentive to then do a coalition because they could just collapse that parliament and go for another election under a new system. Um, and it worked in favor of uh, the New Democracy Party, think Tories in this country, and they got an absolute majority of 158, which is very, very rare in Greece. Um, and even more worrying, I think, um, is that even after the, the recent tragedies in the Mediterranean, um, with so many people losing their lives, the far right has reemerged. Three far right parties made it into parliament. Um, uh, they have between them about 12%. Uh, one is supported by the former deputy leader of Golden Dawn, which, which is now outlawed as a criminal organization. Another one is basically an Orthodox church party. Um, so uh, it, it's all going a little bit peculiar. And uh, and it's worrying that there is there is nothing to pull the government a little more to the centre at the moment, mm -hmm. and plenty to pull it further right. So um, that's what's going on back home. Firstly, though, a couple of important messages for our dedicated listeners. One, don't miss our fabulous new podcast, Paper Cuts, the modern newspaper review for today's busy listener. On Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays, Miranda Sawyer and special guests look at the absolute state of the fourth estate, pulling out the biggest, weirdest and occasionally most brilliant stories from our national newspapers. Search Paper Cuts on your favourite podcast app now. And two, the next podcaster's question time is coming on Zoom for Patreon backers. This time is the fabulous Dorian Linsky answering your questions this Thursday, 29th of June, if he comes home from Glastonbury. Search Patreon, oh God, what now, to sign up as a supporter and get access to the Zoom, as well as all our goodies from the House of Podmasters. Right. Interest rates have shot up to 5%, the Bank of England's highest level for 15 years, and the signalling is that this isn't even the last raise. The governor, Andrew Bailey, says it's simply a case of taking action now or, and I quote, it would get a lot worse later. Rishi Sunak says, hold your nerve, although to whom he is saying that, I don't know. It's not like your mortgage coming off a fixed rate can be undone by a plucky attitude. And with the NHS waiting lists rising, more strikes on the way, and good weather meaning numbers crossing the channel are increasing again, the rest of Sunak's five pledges look about as good as his economic ones. But not to worry. Apparently, he's totally 100% on it, and it will be OK. Except it's already not OK for millions of people. Seth, how have we got to this point? Because by all accounts, many forecasts didn't predict inflation being quite so sticky and interest rates rising by this amount. 
it very much depends on who you ask, not least because there isn't one cause of inflation. If there were, we would all have a solution to that. The government likes to keep emphasising that this is a delayed reaction to the COVID pandemic and particularly to the idea that the furlough scheme is responsible, that uh, there's lots of money sloshing around, disposable income from that time, and because of the spending power then, that's putting all of the prices up. Um, they gave us too much money, basically. That's, that's their, well, they, they gave the wrong people too much money is the uh -huh. argument. Um, that's quite a difficult argument for Rishi Sunak to push as the chancellor who actually fronted the furlough scheme in the first place. Um, there's also a wider question, even if we accept that argument, about other schemes, because let's not forget the billions that were put out in COVID emergency loans, many of which did go to save companies, but many of which uh, were called in by companies which don't seem to have actually needed the money very much with hindsight. We're finding all sorts of interesting stuff about how those things operated. Um, and of course, there's the elephant in a room. Uh, no one is seriously suggesting that Brexit has single-handedly caused massive inflation, but I think you'd have to be pretty hard-stretched to say that it's not massively exacerbated this. Mm. The fact remains that we have some of the worst inflation in Europe by quite some way, and even if it's only responsible for another 2% or so, that's quite a lot given where we are right now. And then there's the Bank of England's predicament, because remember, this is the flip side of having an independent Bank of England. They'll do stuff that the government doesn't necessarily want to do, um, and it's very much been their call about raising interest rates, although, as we know from the vote with a couple of dissenting voices, even the board of the Bank of England actually weren't entirely unanimous on this. Mm. The Bank of England has been accused of trying to create a recession. Hunt says it's a price worth paying, even though they backpedaled from that quite a bit in the days that followed. But what would be achieved by creating a recession exactly? I mean, if the, if the reasons are not demand-led... Well, firstly, let's remember that we do live in an age of hedge funds. And so there is a percentage of the population, however tiny, who would actually quite like a recession. Because if you are betting against the grain, you can make money out of catastrophe and chaos. Um, but, uh, you know, even ignoring the fact that the Conservative Party does have donors who are hedge funders, I don't want to, you know, suggest the conspiracy theory that this is the single line of argument they're pursuing. It's more that instead of rejecting this out of hand, the stock response now is, well, it's very complicated. There's more than one opinion on this. Um, but it does depend on your economic doctrine and outlook in part. You know, you might argue that deflation for the whole economy is a good thing. And th accepting that as a sort of economic abstract is very different from on the ground saying, yeah, we're totally comfortable about loads of people losing their jobs <laughs> and high rates of unemployment. But again, if you are of the view that Margaret Thatcher is a goddess incarnate and that she did brilliant things that no one else dared to do and she had the courage to stick to her convictions and put up with high unemployment and that this was just the price to be paid, well, again, there are a number of people who would argue that this is just necessary. You know, There's a lot of masochism in conservative economic mm. policy. Mm -hmm. Hannah, uh, over to the housing desk. <laughs> yes, um, hello, I'm here. <laughs> how worried should people be right now about rising interest rates? Well, some people should be very worried. Um, some homeowners, for those it does affect because they are in the process of remortgaging in the next 12 months or trying to buy their first property. Um, or coming off a fixed rate. Or cu yeah, cu yeah, coming off a fixed rate and remortgaging, yes. Um, it absolutely is a period of crisis. And let's be clear, that is a lot of newspaper readers, which is why this is such a significant story. And it's also a lot of listen listeners to this podcast, I'm certain. But actually, overall, structurally, the mortgage crisis doesn't affect as many people as you might assume, certainly from the coverage. Um, most homeowners don't have a mortgage. I got some of the stats out because I think it's always worth reminding people this is a small percentage of, mm -hmm. of the country. 32% of homes in the UK are owned outright without a mortgage. 28% are owned with a mortgage or a loan. 20% are privately rented. Obviously, there's some overlap there. And 17% are social housing. So, but for the people who are living in those privately rented homes, it doesn't affect them. It's, it's a minority. Well, it might indirectly, It might I indirectly guess. by either, yeah, being uh, yeah. expected to move because they're selling up and so on. But it's not their immediate finances that are in crisis this month, unless they're asked to move, <laughs> possibly. Um, so it's easy to... <laughs> Almost, I don't want to say overplay because this is a very significant moment in the economy, but it, it's, a, it's a small number of very significant electorally people mm -hmm. that it's affecting. And, and that's why we're all talking about it so much. And I think that perspective is important to remember. 
Hunt last week invited the big lenders to the Treasury and extracted some fairly loose promises from them. Did he do enough, do you think? He didn't do enough because I think he missed some of the most acute cases. So he, the things he included in, in this were preventing your home from being repossessed in the next 12 months. He got lenders to agree to this rough deal. The second is there would be more flexibility around switching the terms of your mortgage. So you might be able to make it longer to reduce your monthly payments. You might be able to switch to interest only. I mean, you can argue about whether those are useful things. I have my concerns about the fact that they extend mortgages that are already incredibly long. Mm, Often these mm. are 30-year mortgages being extended to 35 years or longer. And it takes people longer so, and longer to get on their housing ladder. So, yes, exactly. You know, Most first-time buyers... When you're talking buyers, about a 30-year... <laughs> Yeah. 30-year mortgage, you're talking probably about someone paying into their 70s. Most first-time buyers are in their 30s now. So, yes, you're looking at, at that. Um, but he didn't do anything for, and this I think is really significant in terms of remembering who he's trying to speak to rather than what he's actually doing for the economy, is there was nothing for those who bought through help to buy and nothing mm. for those who uh, bought shared ownership properties. Mm. And those uh, buyers are already massively over leveraged they were expected to buy at the highest point they could possibly afford they weren't they're not allowed to take yeah, a lower yeah. portion than they can afford and so they're already paying the most they can manage there's nothing for them it shows no understanding that they've helped all these young people on the ladder and now they're in crisis why are we not heard anything about them um Shadow Chancellor Rachel Reeves uh, called it a Tory mortgage penalty. I think we'll hear that quite a lot. Yes, in the that's a nice months. little snappy soundbite, um, isn't it? <laughs> has Labour offered a serious solution to this problem? Is there a serious solution to this problem? It hasn't offered very much. Uh, pretty much the same when it was positing its own suggestions. They were pretty much the same as those that Hunt has managed to secure from lenders. Uh, in fact, when they was looking at the window to hold off repossession, they were only asking for six months. So they're actually asking for less than the government managed to secure. In so much as everybody is over leveraged in the way I've said, because house prices are so wildly out of sync with wages, uh, they are saying more that could be helpful in the long term around building building, building, building. So building social housing, building open market housing, trying to take the heat out of the housing market and make sure it's more akin, more aligned, I should say, with what we're earning. Um, that's helpful, but that's a long-term project. Mm -hmm. In the short term, we're not hearing anything much extra. Yasmin, um, with his I'm 100% totally on it platitudes, Sunak looks increasingly to me like a sort of over-promoted manager in a Zoom meeting he didn't know was happening until five minutes before. Um, his supposed major strength was meant to be that he was a technocrat uh, who grasped the detail with a focus on economics. I mean, how does this horrendous economic situation reflect on those credentials, especially considering he was chancellor before he was prime minister? Yeah, I mean, I think the point was made before, but it makes it extremely difficult for him to kind of distance himself from some of the, the the kind of spending decisions that were made that have contributed to the crisis that we're in now. But we all remember when when Sunak came into power, he really did try to portray himself as a, a safe pair of hands for Britain in the aftermath of years of kind of you know instability and chaos and. And while, you know, his tone is always kind of very steady and assured, like just hold your nerve, it's fine. The fact of the matter is that a lot of Britons do not feel like they're any longer in, in sort of a steady pair of hands. They feel like they're falling through the fingers to extend the metaphor even further. Um, mm. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a huge issue because, you know, he, he set out basically to say, I'm going to fix the problems that my predecessors um in effect, kind of, you know, started. He was there as well. And I think, you know, a, a year was never going to be a lot of time to have inflation or get the economy growing, let alone achieve any of the other pledges that he's made. So I think he has kind of dug himself into a considerable hole. With the Bank of England actively trying to cool the economy and interest rates, um, meaning the UK's debt repayments are going up, mm. Is it now curtains basically for Sunak's three economic pledges to halve inflation, achieve growth and reduce their debt? I mean, it seems to me that it's now impossible to achieve all three of them. 
I mean, t- to your point, with the cost of borrowing rising, I think that the government's ability to, you know, offer tax cuts or any of the other sort of pre-election goodies that you'd usually dole out to voters, that's going to be extremely limited. And and on the flip side with labor too, you know, I remember putting this to Starmer in, in, in Time's interview with him only a few months ago, asking about the kind of fiscal limitations that he was going to be facing when he comes into office. I think in all respects, whoever's going to be in charge after the next election is going to have a very limited, you know, kind of financial remit, as it were. With an election as little as a year away, it's really hard to see how um, how the government does this. And you know, it's it's worth even just paying attention to how voters are receiving this information, right? Because you mm. know, there was a poll in YouGov that showed um, that I think fifty percent of Britons see the responsibility of reducing inflation as falling to the government, not the Bank of England. So even if there was some inclination. And I don't think Sunak has this inclination um, based on his statements, but if there was some inclination on the part of some conservatives to basically point to the Bank of England and say they're the baddies that have done this, um, you know, I I don't necessarily think that's going to wash with voters who expect that when Sunak says the buck stops with me and I take responsibility that he means it. Um, Seth, the fourth pledge to cut NHS waiting lists is looking pretty rapey too. They are, in fact, increasing. Mm -hmm. They're at record levels and there are more doctor strikes ahead, both junior and consultants. Uh, Sunak is instead announcing pie-in-the-sky long-term staffing plans and the rollout of AI diagnostic program. I mean, can any of that make a dent in the short term? If if we're looking at a year Mm. or 18 months at most... Almost certainly not, um, especially because a lot of these plans will take five to ten years to even get going. Um, part of it, you might cynically say, is around political messaging and want to be because you don't have a substantive answer to that, so you start talking about the big pie in the sky stuff. Um, but there's also a further element, which is that governments are very much like people in terms of their lifespan. If you get a major health scare, you start to think about your mortality (laughs) and you start to think about your legacy and what's left after you're going. We saw this, for example, with Gordon Brown's government. They announced a whole raft of policy stuff, which would take, you know, decades in some cases to be Mm. fully rolled out. Um, And it's very much about trying to establish some long-term planning. The trouble with that is that when you're on ropes in that way, these plans are very often the most easily and quickly reversed. And, you know, we saw a lot of this again with Gordon Brown saying, well, we were the very first government to get some serious long-term planning going until the next lot came along and reversed everything <laughs> six months later. <laughs> I mean, I would also say that with the amount of capital investment underspending that's uh, been going on in the NHS, you might have trouble interfacing AI technology with Windows 97, <laughs> which was hospitals use. Um, mean, on top of which... The government is now briefing. It might have to ignore the pay review body's recommendation on people like teachers and police officers. For a year, ministers would tell anyone with a microphone that the reason they couldn't pay nurses properly was that they had farmed out the process to independent bodies, nothing to do with them. I mean, can they really hope to get away with this kind of U-turn? Uh, not without um, facing plenty more industrial action, I would think. Um, you know. it's kind of bizarre to think back to it. You know, we were in sort of the spring of discontent and the summer of discontent. (laughs) And now we're back to the spring, I guess, summer now as well. Um, You know, it feels like Britain's kind of just deeply locked in sort of this this year of strikes now. I'm trying to remember even when they kind of officially started. And, And I know that in my experience, British people do not like to be compared to France. But it kind of like, I would kind of wonder if the UK is giving France a run for its money when it comes to <laughs> having a reputation of, of striking. But, but you know, with understandable reason, I think we're seeing these strikes across continental Europe as well as here. But if, if the government does say that after, as you say, kind of hiding behind process for so long, I, I think that's going to be really upsetting to a lot of people. Mm. Hannah, how about stop the boats? How's that one going? Come on, give us something. Well, you won't be surprised to hear, not very well. Uh, Just in the last seven days alone, there have been 19 boats intercepted with 807 migrants. And the way the government presents that data is day by day, so you can't see the scale of it. When you sort of see it as like 46 and one boat, it doesn't look so much. But I sat down and added them up this afternoon. So 807 in a week. Um, Of course, you won't be surprised to hear me say that I'm sure these are people that we should be welcoming and protecting. Um, 
But it's not what the government wants to see. And no, they're doing a bad job. Okay, My... so, I mean, we're not, we're not endorsing <laughs> the morality of Stop the Boats. We're just saying that was his yeah, yardstick. He's, he's failed. So now um, we're uh, going to hit him with it. Quite at rightly. Every quite rightly, too. Um, the Migration Bill is back in the Lords this week, um, being kicked around for creating a Britain that is a sort of um, morality and humanity vacuum. And, uh, and so the two together, I think, are a stick to, to beat him with, as you said. Can I ask all of you, the, the five priorities was a gamble. We said so at the time, right? But it was a gamble that he, he felt he needed to take at the time, I guess. Number 10, we'll try to spin limited successes. We're already seeing it a little bit. They're going, oh, we've reduced the NHS waiting list for people waiting more than 18 months. For a broken like, toe. <laughs> okay, yeah. Cheers. Thanks for that. Um it seems to me the Tories' goose is cooked now, electorally. There's very, very little room to manoeuvre. You see leads of over 20 points. Again, markets are moving against them. The guilt rates are high. What is the off-ramp? I mean, I think the only opportunity for a way out is some kind of leadership challenge, either a vote of no confidence or someone standing up. But nobody's going to stand against because they don't want to be the person to lead into the election. And the, a vote of no confidence, how would that look for the Conservatives? I mean, they know they're toast anyway, but still, we've been through so many of them in the last few years. It's just going to be bobbing along in misery. I agree. Anything else? I mean, we do have, like I said, three to five by-elections coming up. Is there any scenario so catastrophic that it forces some reaction that no one is betting money on? Uh, this will, I think, depend on a strand of humility, which is strangely absent at the moment. Um, I don't think we're going to see an off-ramp because, remember, the mortgage crisis goes in several directions and ministers need to pay their mortgages. They are human <laughs> beings like you and me. And they're, they're not going like to quit. They are just like us in that way. But this is why, if you're on this kind of a salary, and I know many ministers who have overextended themselves over the years in this way, um, they're going to cling on. I, I think all this talk of a spring or an autumn election, complete fairy tale. They're going to go on until January 2025 at the last possible minute. What if oh, Sunak just throws year, his okay. hands up and resigns? I just don't think he will. I think that's not a believable proposition, personally. I'd I love I can it. hear Yasmin sighing. <laughs> I was sighing more at the concept of my birthday being ruined by an election. <laughs> but um, um, no, but I, I think to Hannah's point, I mean, I I agree that you know if if you're someone an ambitious person within the Conservative Party, you probably see your path to power as more picking up the pieces when things have imploded. Is there almost a case of like trying to just rip off the Band-Aid if you know that doom is imminent? I think we'd all love that. Mm. I just can't see it. But I, I think the language has changed inside the Conservative Party over the last few months because up until, say, six months ago, they were still talking about Rishi Sunak as the next John Major, a moderate leader who could pull off a 1992, and it's just not working. And they know it's not working. And the language is now shifting to when we lose the next election and when we spend at least one term in opposition, maybe more. And you're seeing this reflected in the number of MPs announcing this early that they're standing down. I think we're up to 42 mm. already. That's oh, a... oh, it's more than that because there was another couple over the weekend. <laughs> so uh, we, we're getting close to the 50s. They're dropping like flies. Now, we couldn't not talk about the incredible developments in Russia over the weekend, but in a move both unusual and quite painful for four commentators, we decided we weren't going to talk out of our asses, but give the floor to our resident expert. I caught Arthur Snell in between meetings, he says, on Monday for a quick update. Hi, Arthur. Thanks for joining. Um, the the Prigozhin episode it seemed to fizzle out as suddenly as it flared up. Uh, what is your best guess as to what actually happened? Well, I think the way to look at this is that Prigozhin was throwing his last dice. This was a desperate man who was going to see his uh, Wagner military company basically rolled up, and that was due to a new order from the Minister of Defence. So rather than see it as a threat to Putin, a coup, a potential, you know, march on Moscow. It was uh, the last desperate effort by somebody who saw his business model falling apart. I mean, we'll still have dented 
Putin's image and authority quite significantly, though, right? Oh, I totally agree with that. So although although on Prigozhin's side it was a desperate gesture, I think Putin is now also shown up to be almost equally desperate because ultimately, you know, if someone in, in a society such as Russia where force matters, if someone can start an army marching towards Moscow and then the worst that appears to happen to them is that they, they get taken off to a sort of quiet retirement in Belarus, it's a, it's a massive massive blow mm, mm. on the face of it. It's very humiliating for Putin. Will it impact the actual military campaign in Ukraine, do you think, other than creating confusion, morale, all of that? But will it practically affect things on the ground? I think to a limited extent. I limited because actually most of Prigozhin's um, forces had left the battlefield already. And this was sort of part of the issue that he had effectively sort of stormed out of the room, slamming the door behind him and taking his soldiers with him. But I think there will be a practical impact because you have to assume that the Russian military leadership is going to have to invest resources now in ensuring that there aren't other potential mutinies, other potential instabilities buried inside their system. Mm. The other possible impact, of course, could be if this is the moment the Russians decide to do another sort of major distraction, such as blowing up the dam, obviously a few weeks ago, you know, the fears about what might happen to the Zaporizhia nuclear plant. Again, you know, it's very hard to predict these things, but if the Russians feel desperate, they, they might sort of pull the lever on one of those plans that, that sits there. A lot of people are drawing parallels with Gorbachev, uh, who survived a coup, but was then forced out of power a few months later. Um, did you see anything like that on the horizon? Well, I think, I think certainly that the people around Putin, that the sort of top layer of, of Siloviki, of, of, of um, you know, Russian apparatchiks that run the state for him, what they will have learned from today's events or the, the, the weekend's events is that you can launch an armed uprising you can move hundreds of miles in the direction of Moscow, basically unopposed. And at the end of it, Putin doesn't have the power or authority to face you down in any kind of military kinetic way. And he has to rely on Lukashenko, who's supposed to be, this is you know, Belarus president, who's supposed to be his mm. kind of client president, has to rely on him to cut the deal. So yes, it would seem to me that the message anyone takes from this is that Putin is far weaker than any of us had imagined. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, you know, that someone then launches a coup tomorrow morning, but all the people around Putin uh, will be sort of eyeing each other with even greater la layers of suspicion mm. than they probably were, were on Friday afternoon. What's next for Prigozhin, do you think? Free swimming lessons with a cement kickboard? Polonium vodka <laughs> with Novichok blinis? I mean, Putin is not famous for his magnanimity. No, I mean, if you make Putin look stupid, I, you know, it doesn't normally end well. I would be surprised if he has long on this earth. Okay, Arthur, thanks for keeping us up to date. Thanks, Alex. Always a pleasure. And if you want more of that, do subscribe to our Doomsday Watch podcast, where Arthur has been issuing updates on top of the superb regular current season. Next, there's been a bit of a controversy over peerages and honours recently. I don't know if you've heard. Charlotte Owen seems to have stumbled into the world's best internship <laughs> programme. And Sean Bailey looks said to be rewarded for presiding over his team parting during lockdown. On such criteria, maybe Nadine Doris is right to be pissed off. Is cronyism getting worse during the dying days of this government? And how can we stop it? Seth, we are very much in your wheelhouse with this. Let's go back a bit. Has it always been thus, or is it actually getting worse? Oh, I think it's getting worse for two reasons. Oh, I was afraid you were going to say, <laughs> you were going to say some obscure reference. No, no, no. I mean, the, the, the two reasons are, one is that these are fundamentally, a lot of them are new roles, yeah. um, these non-executive directors, which were brought up for a very good reason. It was to stop cronyism, to bring total <laughs> neutral outsiders. Um, but the other problem is that we have a government that doesn't care anymore. And this is very clear. Uh, we have some rules that 
improved for a whole number of reasons, really, in the mid to late 90s, because there were so many scandals under Major, and it was so clear that the good chaps theory of government wasn't working. And all the Nolan principles, the mm. standards mm. in public life, this was stuff literally made up on the back of an envelope, but it was actually quite good. Mm. Um, and there was a good cross-party buy-in. Everyone wanted to be seen to get their house in order in a way that works rather better than, say, during the MP's expenses scandal of 2009. But not only do we have a government that doesn't care, we also have a vital corollary to that, which is freedom of information. FOI has been responsible for much of the last 20 years in allowing journalists to really check up on government in a big way. The slow disentanglement of FOI over the last five or six years in particular means that we can no longer keep tabs on government. And it's actually... um, They just ignore requests now. They ignore even the information commissioner saying, you must provide it. They still don't. You said at the start of the show that it was maybe the, the last batch of peers that the Tories are going to appoint. I reckon they've got at least three batches more. I think we're going to see Sunak's first batch at the very least this summer. We're going to see another batch at least next summer. And there's going to be Sunak's resignation honours. That's not including Truss's resignation honours, which have already been leaked, uh, and whether they come through. Seth, I feel sick. (laughs) In 2016, you wrote a paper about how many Tory party treasurers go on to serve in the House of Lords. Is a peerage basically now becoming part of the benefits package for certain positions? Is it Unexpected. Well, the Centre for the Study of Corruption at the University of Sussex certainly thinks so. Um, we calculated the odds statistically of so many donors accidentally ending up in the Lords, which is what they always say, you know, it's just pure coincidence. Um, the figure we came up with which was 1.75 decillion to one, which in plain <laughs> English is entering the national lottery 13 times in a row back to back and winning the jackpot each time. (laughs) But we have actually calculated an update since then, because that was, you know, seven years ago. Um, As of last year, the figure was more like 18 lottery wins in a row. Wow. Wow. (laughs) But not all donors want a peerage. I can think of plainer English to describe that, to be entirely (laughs) honest. Um, The Public Administration and Constitutional Affairs Committee, the infamous PACAC, um, has called for new guidance to stop personal and political friends of ministers being appointed as super spads, which are sort of senior special advisors. What is the interplay of spads and the honours system? They're pretty much guaranteed a massive honour on retirement from government. Um, you know, the MBEs, CBEs, all these sorts of low-grade things. Occasionally, they'll get a knighthood. This started out, actually, after the coalition because so many Lib Dems got their marching orders and they were deemed to be terminally unemployable. Um, I mean, the, the flip side of being a spad is that you are completely the plaything of the minister. You're not very employable other than as a lobbyist. If your party has just lost power... You don't have many contacts with the new party anyway. So um, as a sort of golden goodbye, they give you an honour. But remember, the honours system was never meant to reward great achievement or philanthropy. The honours system was designed to be corrupt. It's doing exactly what it's always meant to do as a venal system. (laughs) Everyone takes a big sigh. (laughs) Hannah, does the fact that the current House of Lords has actually been Quite a valiant, if not always effective, limit on the executive's Mm. worst excesses. Does that confuse the issue or is it part of the issue? You know, what I mean by that is other Tories actually stuffing the House of Lords because it's been such a thorn on their side. Absolutely. I think it's that's part of the motivation to kind of neuter it, to stuff it full of their cronies Mm. and make sure that it it no longer has the strength of, um, I guess, common values that it previously had. And I, I take Seth's point that, you know, the whole system w- was already was always designed to be thus. It was already, always about your mates and shoring up power. But actually, as you say, it has been doing quite a good job of representing what we might think of British values, mm. although that's a contentious phrase I know, recently. So they don't want that. They want people who are just going to turn up and claim the expenses and nod along and don't engage fully with the process. Yeah, they don't turn up, though. They don't vote. That's, that's, the, that's the, the fatal flaw in that plan. That <laughs> the cronies just don't turn up. But the, the, the experts have only a 10% turn up rate. Mm. Um, Sean Bailey 
being made appear, despite <laughs> yes. being part of that lockdown party that made a mockery of oh. us all. Is that a key example of people who shouldn't get anywhere near the House of Lords, let alone politics? I think he's a great example for a couple of reasons. It's not really just about the lockdown party, although I don't want to be dismissive of that. That was grotesque. And he doesn't. He shouldn't be there on yeah. the basis of that alone. But who is he as a character and what has he done? I think the reason that he is a popular choice is not just about his cozying up. It's also that he's from a non-traditional background. He didn't go to university until he was 27 and he went to London South Bank Uni and then he set up a, a charity for young black people called My Generation. But that charity failed and got into a load of trouble for accounting issues and ended up being subsumed by Kids Company. Remember them. <laughs> right, so, the, so that failed. Then he was a failed London mayoral candidate. Uh, and he's an ex-Cameron spad on crime. So presumably we've got his advice to thank for the proliferation of county lines and gang violence and so on. Uh, so why is he there? He should not be there. He's done nothing notable. He's never been elected. He's never achieved, despite standing in both as a MP, candidate MP and standing in London as a mayoral candidate. The people have not voted for him. He's done nothing of true public service. It really is a trajectory of failing upwards, yeah, if there if there right. ever was one. Um, Seth, finally, Labour by Gordon Brown um, made a big report, recommendations for reforming the Lords, among other constitutional reforms. Um, briefly, what were the main ones and are they likely to be taken forward by a future Labour government? Well, the Brown Report's main recommendation was to get an elected second chamber which would have limited powers that would very closely match the current House of Lords. I'm sceptical as to whether this will ever happen under a Labour government, partly because Keir Starmer himself has said this is not a priority. Uh, we just heard over the weekend Thangham Debonair, the uh, shadow leader of the House of Commons, say this is not a priority for a Labour government. Um, bear in mind that the Parliament Act of 1911, at the end of a major constitutional crisis, starts out in its prelude with saying, pending the uh, reform or abolition of the House of Lords. <laughs> and for over a century since then, we have seen government after government pledging we're going to reform or abolish the House of Lords. And strangely enough, it's not happened. Part of it, uh, Hannah touched on, is this tendency to um, pack the chamber, uh, particularly if you're trying to, as you see it, redress the balance of the previous government. <laughs> yeah. And what you get are tit-for-tat appointments which massively expands the size of Lords. I mean, the Lords already has nearly 800 members, which is you know, larger than the House of Commons of 650. But the only way you're going to get um, any kind of balance for the Labour Party against the Tories after 13 plus years of Tory rule is to put it up to 900 or 1,000. And also, you used to get the certain dying off factor. Yeah. But now younger people are being appointed and they're not coming Very through young. their traditional... Yes. <laughs> you haven't recently. got the same... Attrition rate. And what happens <laughs> if the Labour government, for example, only serves one term, we get a change of power, then the Tories will do exactly the same thing. They're looking at 1,300 plus. UCL's constitution unit has done some projections of what tit for tat appointments between changes of government would look like, and the numbers are eye watering. God, it's ridiculous. I can't actually. Cope so basically, with it. if we keep going like this, by 2050, everyone will be a lord. Unless there's something very <laughs> wrong with you. <laughs> Finally, let us discuss that question time, Leave Voters Only edition. To mark the anniversary of the referendum, the BBC decided to ignore Remain vo voters, people who didn't vote, people who were too young to vote, and migrants like me who couldn't vote for a one-off special. Although I'm not sure what was special about it, the BBC has been ignoring all those groups for seven years. <laughs> The audience was unkindly described by someone, okay, by me, as the largest concentration of gammon outside the Mercado and Don Martin, a specialist jamon superstore in Madrid. But let us rein in our remunerary elitism and try instead to assess what it revealed seven years on from that vote. Hannah, let's start on a positive note. What surprised you pleasantly about the debate? Hmm. <laughs> Where to start? <laughs> That's the brief, babe. Uh, Work with it. Okay. Look, I don't want to be too bleak about the actual idea behind it. I think given where we are that, you know, the attitudes of Leave voters have shifted with the economy and so on and as thing, the promises have unravelled, 
I think that the proposition was a good one to sort of reflect where we are now and for people to see that. But the problem was the delivery just didn't pull that off because it was leave voters only. You only saw a fraction of that attitude. Mm. You didn't see how the country as a whole has now shifted to predominantly remain. So it came off as unbalanced anyway. That's all I can say that's positive, that it was quite a good idea. Was the fact that the government wouldn't send a, even a, a junior minister to defend Brexit really the most telling aspect? The task fell to John Redwood on the night. Well, I think Yasmin has already touched on that. I'm not surprised that there was n- nobody who would go and do that job. Seth is shaking with laughter, I should tell this. <laughs> Sorry, it's just the punchline, At John the Redwood. the mention of John Redwood. <laughs> uh, I just who would do it as exactly as Yasmin said, if you're a younger uh, or, you know, ambitious conservative who still believes they have a future beyond uh, next year's election and you're thinking about your five or 10 year political career from here, why on earth would you take that job? Yasmin, there was a particularly spectacular moment where one woman claimed to have voted for Brexit because of something to do with (laughs) people in Germany and France going up on the roofs. Um, Is this a vindication of the apocryphal quote that the best argument against democracy is a five-minute conversation with the average voter? Or is it actually a failure of democracy that the average voter is not better informed? Yeah, I mean, I I think it's more of the latter. I think it's a a failure of, well, first and foremost, I mean, you can make, of course, this argument has been trotted out time and again, so we don't need to relitigate it here about whether referendums are, are the best formats to decide big decisions such as these. But, you know, the, the fact that that is the first thing that that came to mind for this woman, that, you know, Britain was following these sort of international, these EU mandates, and, and that France and Germany purportedly were not because they just have people running all over their roofs all the time, I guess, or something like that. And you um, could just see that she'd literally just seen one person in France somewhere, and that became a narrative. You know, it was kind of, I think it was more just sad than anything, because, I mean, yeah. A, that's that's not, one would imagine that that's not actually the, the pivotal reason that was front of mind when she was going to cast her ballot, um, that it was probably all the promises of the really positive things. Um, and, you know, if you, you, you take that one example and switch it, I mean... One would imagine then that the, the the sort of the argument was that Britain didn't have agency or Britain didn't, you know, that it wasn't democratic mm. being in the aware. Of course, you know, we know that's not true, that, you know, Britons voted for their representatives in the European Parliament, including folks like Nigel Farage, for example, to represent them and act in their best interest when those rules are being made. Most surveys put regret, that's leave voters who would actually now vote differently, at about 30%. And Whittagham. Um, who I uh, delighted in watching on GB News the other day, thinks this is actually a glorious victory, considering what she describes as the onslaught of the establishment. Does she actually have a point? Is the Brexit vote holding up pretty well, considering the lack of benefits and how widely that lack of benefits is publicised? Yeah, I was going to say, I think in that point, she has a point, but not in the way she thinks. Um, (laughs) I think the fact that, as you say, that, the, that could be an Anne Whittingham's yeah. tombstone. <laughs> she, she was she right, but point, never the way she thought. Just not the one she thought. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think to your point, the fact that, that the key promises of Brexit haven't really materialized money for the NHS fabulous, you know, trade deals with the US. Apologies if, if that was kind of honest. I, I don't think we really wanted that deal ever anyway. But that aside, you know, the, the fact that none of these things materialized, one would expect that perhaps in the regret rate would be higher. Seth, how did you feel about the debate actually on that? Has it moved on? Or are we largely rehashing the same arguments? Yeah, are they new things? It did seem very much like a time warp of this is where the electorate was in 2016 as a snapshot and we're trying to preserve that picture of them as much as possible. Um, it's actually not a bad thing to have snapshots and to have stereotypes in electioneering terms to try and understand complex social trends. The problem becomes where something is so well known as a phenomenon that we can all name it. I mean, in the 1990s, it was the idea of Worcester woman and Mondeo man. And in the 1970s, it was Selsden man. You know, the problem is the terms remainers and leavers have come to have such emotive uh, visceral representations mm. that um, it doesn't make for very meaningful debate. I mean, did the programme knock down any stereotypes you had about Leave voters? I, I, I thought there were several people who explained themselves in pretty rational ways about why they voted 
to leave in 2016. The, the problem is that most of those people have now changed their minds. Mm. And the people who sort of stick by it seem to be the people who couldn't really verbalize why they decided then and why they still stand by it. But in all fairness, at the time, there were plenty of Leave voters who were perfectly rational and fluent in their reasoning. Um, I don't think that's fundamentally changed, although I'm re remembering the very esoteric reasons given for the gentleman on Channel 4 News who concluded with, my buttocks are smooth, my mind is clear, vote Brexit. <laughs> OK. With that... Well, we've reached the end of the show, which means it's time for escape routes. What delightful bits of string and feather from outside the world of politics have been distracting our cat-identifying panellists this week? <laughs> Hannah. Okay, so I was very rude about the Met Police at the beginning of the show. And, you know, with, uh, I think, um, fair Good justification. Reason. Yes. Um, but actually, what I've been watching quite compulsively is the Channel 4 show 24 Hours in Police Custody, which I've missed until recently. And I just started watching it. And it is so compelling. I mean, the, the things you see, the insights into the interview room, um, the, the tireless work, the mm. hours, mm. late nights, mornings that people put into just getting the tiniest little bit of evidence to, to make sure that people are safe. These are the, the, the cases, are, if you haven't ever seen this, it's worth watching. The cases are all pretty, um, you know, they're humdingers, they're murders right, and, right. and big drug cartels and so on. Um, but it, it just makes absolutely thrilling viewing. How about you, Yasmin? So and this is probably me at my most peak American, but I went to a baseball game in this country, which oh, is surreal. So yeah, the, I only really learned through going through this. It was, it was um, the Chicago Cubs were playing the St. Louis Cardinals. Um, I, I'm going to admit, I'm not a baseball person, really. I think I went to a Giants game once growing up kind of near San Francisco, but um, they, they were playing in London. And as part of this series that Major League Baseball has been putting on is a real push, I think quite similar to the NFL's push of really trying to popularize football, baseball um, on this side of the pond um, and in this country, which I just thought was so cool. And I, I think there were some 55,000 people there. So I just thought it was really interesting. Um, and I actually quite enjoyed it. It's definitely a slower sport than I think football or even like cricket, which is probably the closest. It ain't slower than cricket. Like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, not a, not a full sort of test match. Yeah. <laughs> some of them. But yeah, would um, would recommend next time they're in London to, I think they've already agreed to come back in 2024 and 2026. So it'll be interesting. How about you, Seth? Um, like Harold Macmillan, I've been going to bed with a trollop every night. So I'm currently reading uh, The Way We Live Now. Um, it's a fabulous tale set in the 1870s of a scandal hit incumbent government. Whilst there's a shadowy donor, a Mr. Melmot, who no one's ever heard of. No one knows where he's come from. And he's suddenly trying to reinvent himself as a major decision maker today. I can't think of any relevance <laughs> that this might have. Uh, and my own recommendation would go to Clock, a film on Disney Plus, um, written and directed by Alexis Jackano, and uh, with a very, very good central performance by Diana Agron. It's a horror film about feeling so pressured to have children um, for a woman that has zero maternal instinct, basically. And there's this clinic that can convert you into a motherly person and obviously it, it all goes totally oh, um, horrifically wow. wrong but it's it's by no means a perfect movie but it's a very very smart take on the motherhood theme that runs through horror films because instead of going for subverting the protectiveness um, you know the having a baby mm. process basically it goes for subverting the process of wanting to have a baby sounds great um, which don't have a look and that's the end of the Tuesday edition of Oh God, What Now? Thanks to Yasmin Sirhan. Thanks for having me. To Hannah Fern. Thank you. And to Seth Tevo. Thank you so much. In the meantime, here's a theme tune, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop. We'll see you next time. Oh God, What Now? was presented by Alex Andre with Hannah Fern, Yasmin Sirhan and Seth Tevo. The producer is Chris Jones, and the audio editor is me, Robin Lieber. Managing editor is Jacob Jarvis, group editor Andrew Harrison, and Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production. <laughs>